Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, the podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm David. I'm Monica. And today we are going to be continuing our spooky Halloween horror theme with the 1932 Carl Theodore Dreyer film, Vampire. Alan Gray is a young man who studies the occult and supernatural. His studies bring him to a small village by the river called Courtempierre, where he stays at a small inn. In the middle of the night, an older man intrudes into his room, cryptically says the words, she mustn't die, and leaves a package on the desk with a note saying, to be opened upon my death. In the morning, Alan wanders about the countryside and finds a castle filled with mysterious shadows and spirits. He also encounters a man, the town doctor, who ushers Alan out of the castle, after which the doctor helps a woman, Marguerite Chopin, out of her room. Alan continues wandering and comes upon a manor. He peers through a window and sees the lord of the manor, the same man who appeared in Alan's room the night before. A shadow appears of a man with a rifle. He aims it and fires, and the lord of the manor falls. Alan alerts the servants to the lord's condition, but they are unable to save him. Alan consults the package the lord left in his bedroom and finds in it a book on vampires, explaining the mythology behind them. He also meets Giselle, one of the lord's two daughters who live in the manor. She tells him that her sister, Leon, has been severely ill. The two spot her leaving the house in a trance and give chase. They find her on a bench, an old woman crouched over her throat. The old woman escapes, and Alan and Giselle bring Leon back into the house. Leon grows more ill, and the town doctor is sent for. The doctor says Leon needs blood and demands that Alan give his. Alan falls asleep after donating his blood, and has a vision of a skeleton clutching a bottle of poison. He is awoken by an elderly servant, who warns him that something terrible is happening. Alan finds a town doctor in Giselle's room, attempting to poison her. The doctor runs, and Alan gives chase, but doesn't get far. Still exhausted from giving blood, he, collapse, he collapses on a bench, and his spirit leaves his body. Alan's spirit follows the doctor, and he sees the doctor and his servant preparing a casket with Alan's own body inside of it. The elderly servant finds Alan's vampire book and reads it, discovering that vampires can be killed by nailing them to the ground at dawn while they sleep in their coffins. He goes and finds the grave of Marguerite Chopin, the vampire terrorizing the town who had taken the town doctor as an assistant. Alan, waking from his out-of-body experience, wanders to the grave and meets the servant. The two open Chopin's coffin and drive a bar through her chest, killing her once and for all. Back at the manor, Giselle miraculously recovers. The town doctor, now hiding out in a local mill, is terrorized by the spirit of the lord of the manor. The spirit locks him in a room that slowly fills with flour, suffocating him. Ellen and Giselle depart the town in a boat, eventually reaching a sunny countryside. So, Monica, uh, what were your thoughts coming out of this film? Uh, this was um, this was the first time you had seen it, correct? Yeah, um, I thought it was 
a lot of fun. And I think you're going to talk about this, but it felt a lot like a silent film, even though it was a talkie. Right. So uh, we, I guess when we were talking off air, uh, you had referenced that like in the movie, they pronounce one of the names in a certain way. And when you said that, I was like, oh, that's right. There are people speak in this film. I had totally forgotten. <laughs> right. Uh, very, on very rare occasions. Right. Um, I guess uh, the other question, question i have very briefly uh did you find this scary no like it had moments that were creepy or the ambiance could be uneasy at times but i still wasn't scared the way i would be in a contemporary horror film interesting well uh let's get right down into it with a little bit of information about the director carl theodore dreyer First off, uh, if you haven't heard of him, he is widely considered to be one of the greatest filmmakers in the history of cinema. He did. He worked on a fair number of films, and uh, uh, all of them, to greater or lesser degrees, have been uh, pretty critically lauded. But I think primarily he gets that reputation for uh, his film, his silent film from 1928, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Uh, so we'll get into that in a little more detail in a second. Uh, but first off, he actually originally started off as a journalist. Uh, and at certain periods, um, I, I believe in the in in the mid-20s, he actually kind of moonlighted as both a, a filmmaker and a journalist. So he was doing these things uh, concurrently. As far as film, he got his start working as a writer of um, title cards for silent films, which is, I think, something you can very much see here, because in this film, there's kind of a lot of, a lot of care is given to that, that piece of it. I didn't know that could be a job. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, I guess someone had to do it, right? And, the, like, he was like, I'm going to keep that job, so that's why he kept so many in here. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> to your point about whether... It, that being a, a kind of surprising job, I don't know if this is a natural trajectory, but he did go from being a title card writer to being a screenwriter to like writing full-length scripts. That might be something that's kind of the natural progression as you advance in your career, but I couldn't say for sure. His first script was produced in 1912, uh, was a film, I'm going to have some trouble with some of this pronunciation, uh, the film Briggerin's Daughter? And then in 1918, he directed his first uh, feature film, The President. So in 1928, Carl Dreyer directed uh, what's widely regarded as his masterpiece, the silent film, The Passion of Joan of Arc, which was actually somewhat controversial as uh, Dreyer is... Uh, Danish, so he was neither Catholic nor French, and this uh, this kind of irritated French nationals who may have been uh, uh, somewhat fierce in guarding the story of Joan of Arc. But when it came out, it was immediately recognized as being a masterpiece among critics at that period, but unfortunately did not perform perform very well financially. It didn't make its money back, and so the production company. Uh, Societe Générale des Films severed its relationship with Dreyer. And I think I didn't see that much about this, but my understanding is that he was 
a bit of a personality when dealing with uh, production companies. He was very, he had a very stern will about him, I suppose. And so I think he, he was uh, likely to butt heads with people. So the production company was glad to be rid of him, but he would eventually sue, sue them in court over breach of contract and actually win that lawsuit. And that actually brings us into the production of this film, Vampire. The company that produced this was actually Dreyer's own company, uh, which was uh, creatively called Film Production Carl Dreyer. It was financed by the Baron Nicholas von Gunsberg, who... It had the title of Baron, so he was obviously quite wealthy. And he gave Dreyer kind of the the financing to get this off the ground on the condition that he would be able to star in a film. And so he is actually the star of this film. He was originally credited as Julian West. I'm not sure exactly if uh, if that's how in kind of modern restorations he's credited as Gunsberg or West. But part of that, I saw that he, he at one point said that he was credited as Julian West to try and uh, make his, his name more palatable to audiences from kind of multiple different countries. But apparently it was also because he had had kind of a contentious debate with his family who didn't want him acting uh presumably because it was you know seen as kind of this low class thing that you know the the uh the wealthy the powerful didn't do and then unfortunately this company folded this was the only film that this company produced and it folded because vampire failed on on pretty much every level when it was released uh i think danish film critics kind of approved of it it was kind of mixed but more generally internationally critics were not keen on it i saw one quote that i wasn't actually able to trace back so take this with a grain of salt but supposedly the film critic of the new york times uh seeing this film he was kind of complimenting its eccentricities but in doing so said that you know there's no question that this is one of the worst films i've ever seen uh so Yeah, kind of (laughs) very sharp (laughs) criticism at the time. So in this film, Dreyer actually employed mostly non-professional actors. The only actors that had professional experience were the Lord of the Manor and Leon. And Monica, I was wondering what you thought of the performances here and kind of whether anyone stood out in a good or bad way. And also maybe if uh, knowing that information, if you can kind of tell that those two had the professional experience or not. Well, I, I thought Leon's character stood out to me because of that part where she's sitting on the chair and she's obviously sick, but then she gets that expression on her face where it's a pretty, we can guess that she wants to vampire attack her sister. Right. The, the kind of um, halfway vicious, halfway lustful glare that she yeah it's really really creepy and her head turns and follows her sister as she kind of moves away i thought that was really good so her performance stood out to me i thought everybody did well i think that the baron who plays the protagonist his face was rather blank a lot of the time but i also thought that that fit his role in a way what what did you think could you 
distinguish the actors and the non-actors? So I didn't I didn't know until I uh, researched that. But I think kind of going back and this might be like, oh, well, now I have this information. So I'm kind of ascribing some kind of quality to these performances that I didn't notice before. But I do think that particularly the Lord of the Manor struck me as a very professional actor. He had very few lines or very few lines of dialogue in this entire film, uh, but he exists as both kind of a spirit and then as this like concerned father, and they're both the same character, but but very distinct. And it's very murky in the narrative of this film. How much are they the same person? What exactly is going on there? And I was really impressed by his ability to play the two roles in a distinctive way so that they felt different. Also, I thought that uh, uh, Julian West or or uh, Nicholas von Gunsberg, uh, I thought he was great. And I think you're right. A lot of what he's doing is kind of looking bewildered and he's doing a lot of work with a kind of, you know, big, big expression, like big wide eyes. But that that suits this role really, really well. One thing we'll talk about later, I believe, is how clear the plot was. And I got to say that before I finished the movie and went and read synopses, I didn't quite understand that the ghost that we saw at the end was the same as the the Lord of the Manor. I was kind of conf- I didn't know who it was. So maybe that's a reflection of that. He did a good job kind of distinguishing his ghost self from his um, real life self. Okay, so a little bit of other information about the production of the film. The cinematographer, Rudolf Matei, uh, he had previously collaborated with Dreyer on uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc. And I thought it was interesting. He, later in the 40s, moved to Hollywood and started directing studio films, I believe for Columbia. I didn't recognize any of the specific titles I saw, but I did see that he worked with a bunch of like really, really big players. So Tony Curtis, Ginger Rogers, William Holden. Uh, so he had a really extensive like uh, uh, directorial career after leaving cinematography. Also, uh, one thing, and we're going to get more in depth on on this element of it in in just a moment. Uh, but Vampire was Carl Dreyer's first sound film. So before they went into production on the film, he actually traveled to England to study sound production. Sound was was an incredibly disruptive technology kind of everywhere film was produced anybody who's seen the film singing in the rain right that that entire thing is kind of about the transition from silent films to talkies and how it impacted actors and production and everything and this was also the case in in europe that a lot of countries within europe didn't really have access to the sound technology and as a result didn't necessarily have the expertise to produce sound films uh but england did have a sound studio. And so I saw a reference, I didn't catch which uh, film, but there was an Italian f- film that specifically shot in England to uh, take advantage of their sound studio. And so Dreyer went there to learn a little bit about that production. And while he was there, he met Christian Jewell, who was the co-writer on this screenplay. And the two of them together went over a lot of different material, watching uh, uh, watching kind of other ghost and like supernatural films and like reading. I, I believe Carl Dreyer was referenced that he read over 30 
different novels to kind of get a sense of like the the supernatural and what he was going to undertake. And so they collaborated on the film and ultimately Dreyer based most of the film uh there there's a lot of deviation from this um this text, but most of it is based on uh, in a Glass Darkly by J. Sheridan Le Fanu. That's a collection of his short stories. And one of them, uh, titled Carmilla, was a vampire story that actually preceded Bram Stoker's Dracula by some some 20 or 30 years. Uh, so one of the earliest appearances of, of vampires in, in fiction. So to delve more specifically into sound and how sound works in Vampire, as we had mentioned earlier, there is very, very little sound here. And um, of course, by sound, I mean diegetic audio and sound effects. There is a very prominent score that continues throughout the entire film. But there are a few very sparse moments of dialogue, as well as some Foley work, right, which is uh, basically the sound effects for if a character is opening a door, the creaking sound, that's Foley. Uh, so we get moments of that as well as some moments of, of the sounds of animals. So, uh, you know, cats or dogs or whatever. But again, it's very, very brief. This film feels very much like a silent film. And as a result, a lot of work has gone into inner titles primarily at the start of the film. They're, they almost have like a an opening crawl introducing you to the protagonist and what he's doing and why he's doing things, etc., which is a, a very much an attribute of the silent era. And then later on in the film, once we have the the presence of the vampire text, the uh, the book that the Lord of the Manor leaves behind, uh, we get really extended shots of just like different chapters, different pages of that book that are really telling us the background information of like what, you know, empires work and instructing us as to why character, why do they go and find Chopin's grave and like nail, you know, nail her down into the coffin based on something that we specifically read as opposed to a piece of dialogue. So Monica, I guess I wanted to ask this uh, this movie is at such a kind of weird like in between moment for silent films and talkies which did it wind up feeling more like a, a silent film or a talkie it feels more like a silent film to me um but i love the balance that it strikes because the sound that you do hear is always meaningful right it's always accentuating something that you need to pay attention to Right. One of the scenes that stands out the most to me from this film is when the the ghost of the Lord of the Manor appears to Alan Gray and he specifically tells him, like, she mustn't die. And the two characters are kind of speaking past each other because Alan Gray asks him, who are you? And then he says, do you hear that? And, you know, she mustn't die and leaves the book and disappears. And we we hear so little dialogue that's that's inc- incredibly resonant. I guess maybe I kind of already have the answer to this, but I was wondering if, if you thought that maybe it would benefit from more dialogue work and perhaps on, on the other end of that, like less um, intertidal slash you know, visual of the the book, less of, of that and more dialogue. I, I, I like the way the balance that it has and the ambiance it creates. One issue I had was with the inner titles, especially at the beginning of the movie, there were there was quite a lot to read. Um, and maybe it's also because I was 
reading it subtitled. Um, so it was a little bit more difficult to read. But I did forget some of the details that were in there that maybe it would have been easier to understand or remember if it had been incorporated as dialogue or even if they had dispersed the inner titles a little bit more in the movie because there was so much front-loading of information that I immediately kind of forgot as soon as we started watching the film, like the, you know, the action. Right. Writing up the notes for the movie, and it, it did take me a while to like, wait, so what happened? Um, like, why? I was always like, wait, why is this guy here? Why is he at this inn in the first place? I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think uh, we'll get into this more in a second, but I, I think in a weird way that actually plays to uh, uh, to the movie's favor. I think it's actually improved almost because you forget so much of that. Next, I'd like to talk about one of the other defining features of this film, uh, the the cinematography, the, the lighting and the camera work. If you remember anything about this film, I think one of the things you might remember is the disembodied shadows. Uh, something that, that struck me in particular was when... Uh, Alan Gray is walking through the castle in which the uh, the town doctor and the vampire reside. Uh, he sees a shadow of this man who at first it looks like one of his legs is a cloven hoof. And then we see the, the shadow move around and then it, it appears to be a prosthetic. And then the shadow moves through the castle and then arrives at a particular position on the wall and then becomes like the actual shadow for that character, uh, which I thought I, I thought the sequence, it's, you know, it doesn't sound the same as I'm describing it. I thought the sequence was a, a really impressive. Is that what happened? I, I went back and watched that scene like twice, I think, because I wasn't sure what happened. See, I thought like the shadow was like a ghost soldier guy who was coming to hang out with the alive soldier guy. And then when the alive soldier, like the human soldier guy got up to walk away and the shadow also got up to walk away, it didn't connect in my mind that now the shadow is attached to him. I thought it was just little ghost guy going off on his own way. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you look at that particular scene, you can see that that's no longer like the, the trickery. Like that's just that dude's actual shadow. Another, another element of uh, of the visuals like that was really impressive was just how mobile the camera was particularly at the beginning i think it it becomes slightly more static as we go on but the the opening shots so many of them were moving around and in particular one shot when uh i believe it's right after the lord of the manor has been killed uh the camera pans to follow char characters around the room and then tracks with them as they're walking down the hallway uh and this this might not sound like any any great shakes again with with cameras getting smaller and we have steady cams and this is all much more feasible but we have to remember that back in the day like cameras were huge and it was it was a thing trying to get them mobile trying to move them around and so i was really astounded by seeing kind of so much fluid motion throughout this film it's it's really impressive monica i, I guess I was wondering if there was anything else that, that you noticed about the cinematography and then maybe how you would compare it to a silent horror film like uh, like Nosferatu or something more contemporary. Almost, uh, like I know you're a fan of uh, the Conjuring films. How do you think it, it kind of compares to those? I thought that this film felt a bit more dimensional than Nosferatu, more movie-like maybe. 
Although both films made good use of varied sets, I thought, a lot of outdoor shots and, and camera tricks. But this this movie struck me as more modern than Nosferatu versus being rather stage-like, uh, the way I think a lot of silent films were. Because in this movie, they did a lot of filming roughly from the characters' perspectives rather than as if uh, the characters are on a stage. Uh, so, for example, especially at the beginning, there was a lot of Alan exploring this new area, you know, turning around corners and seeing these ghostly shadows. And you feel like you're exploring the area with him. It's very immersive. And in that effect, I f it felt a lot like a newer film, I think, because we get a lot of that quasi-first-person perspective. Next up, I'd like to talk specifically about the narrative of this film. So if you boil this thing down really to kind of its core narrative parts, what you wind up with is something that is actually very similar to another film we covered on the podcast, Nosferatu. So the similarities, obviously the vampire, also that the vampire takes possession of a young woman. Uh, a young man is introduced and has to save the young woman. Uh, here, the vampire it's slightly different because a vampire is disposed of by by ironing her or nailing her to her coffin in nosferatu he was exposed to the sun and died that way there there's some other uh minor differences but i think the the kind of general thrust of the story is very similar and as i had referenced before that's probably more less to do with Dreyer adopting the narrative techniques from Nosferatu and more to do with Stoker having been inspired by uh, Jay Sheridan Le Fanu and uh, the short story Carmilla. Uh, so I think that's a lot. That's kind of what's going on again in this narrative core. Uh, but that being said, I think it's it's hard to boil this film down to that plot because as you know as we've referenced earlier it's a little bit difficult to distinguish exactly what happens in this film and part of that is because there are a lot of moments that deviate from the narrative and don't really come back and don't really explain themselves uh one of the most famous sequences from the film is the one in which uh alan gray he uh, collapses on the bench after having his blood drawn and his spirit or, or whatever it is, he has an out-of-body experience that leaves his body and he goes and follows the town doctor to see what he's up to. And is, as opposed to getting a really specific like, oh, the town doctor is helping the vampire and that's what's going on, we get this sequence where, where Gray follows him and sees him and... Uh, the town doctor and his servant preparing a casket. And then we see the inside of the casket and it's actually the body of Alan Gray himself. And then we get these long shots, these long takes of his point of view perspective from inside the casket where he's able to see through kind of a little, uh, a little window within the casket. And he's just looking directly up at the ceiling as the casket is being wheeled off, you know, to the grave to be buried. 
Uh, this doesn't really interact with the main plot. There's not really a specific explanation for this. In the same way that the Lord of the Manor appearing as a specter to Alan Gray before kind of the main events of the film, we never really get an answer as to why he did that or how he did that if he, he consciously knew he was doing that. Uh, there are some kind of implications of a, of a, uh, a prophecy and so there are just a lot of sequences like this, and the opening inner titles actually refer to the idea that Alan Gray has kind of so thoroughly immersed himself in the occult, in the supernatural, that like the spirits haunt his mind and he's unable to really fully wake from this dream. And so I think that's a lot of what's going on here. Monica, you had you had spoken to this a little bit earlier, but I guess how much trouble did you have following the specific plot here? And then I guess, how does this compare to other films that we've seen do this, uh, primarily like Doc- The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Yeah, I thought when he had that out-of-body experience, I thought that he died and became a ghost because he was a victim of the vampire because he'd given his blood right. And then I don't like so he went on that little. Yeah, because then he finds himself in the in the coffin casket or whatever. And I, I, I don't really I didn't really understand what happened. Basically, I thought he he died. And then I was like, but wait a minute. He's so good at manual labor when he was helping to to crack open the um what do you call it? Like the sarcophagus thing of the of the vampire when the servant from the manor is gonna drive the thing through her heart right i was like well that seems like a pretty human capability to be moving those rocks or whatever around and then he i got just better yeah <laughs> yeah no well that was it too i was like oh i guess he got better i just really didn't know what to make of it and then i kind of forgot uh, that that had happened as the movie progressed forward and then i went and i read your synopsis and i was like oh that's what happened okay um <laughs> But for me, even all that aside, I think this movie, mostly it was just that one section that was really hard to understand and also the ghostly shadow things. The plot as a whole maybe was uh, a little bit less confusing than Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, just because I think that one had so... Like, I almost think this movie straddles the two movies, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu, because Nosferatu was a rather straightforward Dracula narrative. But this one this one plays with time and your perceptions of what's going on the way that Cabinet of Dr. Caligari does. So I feel like it's a little bit in the middle there. So the comparison to Dr. Caligari is interesting because I think we we obviously talked a lot more about that uh, on the Caligari episode, so check that out if you're curious. But I think what's interesting is that in that film, it seems like they want you to understand kind of the specific events that are being played out at the moment. So perhaps the overall structure of like, is Caligari this kind of uh, traveling sideshow evildoer, or is he actually the uh you know the the head doctor at this uh the sanitarium we don't really know those answers but we know within a scene that like oh the caligari i'm looking at now he's being portrayed as the head doctor that's what's happening in this scene here i think we get we get the strands of the overall plot primarily from we have our protagonist 
as Alan Gray and, uh, you know, the, the two daughters. And then we have our antagonist as primarily the town doctor and also uh, Chopin, the vampire. And so we understand that that kind of broad plot thrust, but we don't necessarily know in each particular scene what is happening. And again, with that with the casket scene, it's not, it's not really explained why, you know, why is he in there? And I think in that way, this is somewhat more successful at creating that sense of nightmare uh, on a scene to scene basis. So let's get a little bit into the symbolism. So obviously this being a vampire film, it's going to be dealing with uh, some kind of erotic subtext, uh, which is a, a, a trait of, of this entire genre. Primarily, I think what's interesting here, as opposed to Nosferatu, which dealt with eroticism, but was very, uh, very, I suppose, uh, a little bit more heteronormative here, introducing the idea of the female vampire, we are bringing up kind of the idea of, of lesbianism, right? Um, and having the, the female vampire Chopin preying on young women. And then in other kind of subtext within the film, we get, again, the, the dream logic and the unreliable narrator, uh, Alan Gray being, you know, kind of in a half-dream state. Some of the inner titles also have, have backgrounds of spider webs, which I think is pretty obviously referring to the idea of like a, a fractured or, or labyrinthine mind. And then we also have the element of, of kind of provincial horror and the difference between like the city living and rural living. Because Alan Gray, we don't really get that much background on him, but what background we do get is primarily that he has the time and the money to spend studying the occult, which indicates that he is either kind of a, a strange type of academic uh, or he is just an eccentric hobbyist. Either way, that would require a good amount of, of uh, uh, wealth, right? He would have to be independently wealthy to be doing these things because he doesn't have to, you know, stay and do do manual labor at a factory or or what have you. In the the opening sequence of of the film, there are a lot of shots uh, of this man who's in the village who is holding a scythe uh, rather omin ominously, and it's it's on a lot of the promotional material for this for this film. So the the Blu-ray box set, the Criterion version, has the image of the scythe, and then we also have kind of the relationship between the the servants of the manor and then the town doctor who like the town doctor is kind of portrayed to be this scheming evil man who is who is abusing his position of authority uh and it's kind of up to the servants and in particular the elderly servant to to divine exactly what's going on and to to beat him uh and so i think i think there's a lot of interesting i don't know that the film particularly comes down in one direction or the other, but it does seem to reveal this general mistrust between rural and urban people and also between people of, of different classes and, and stations in life. So Monica, I, I guess kind of uh, taking all that into account, I was wondering if there were, there was any other subtext, any other symbols that stood out to you? You see it like the camera looks at it a couple times during the film. And I don't know what it is. It's like a, Maybe it's the sign for the inn. It's it's a sign where it's not like there's an image painted on it, but it's like a cutout. 
Right. Kind of like um, a wind vane. Yeah, maybe. Maybe something like that. I mean, I don't think it exactly was that, but it's that same kind of like flat steel creating an image. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they 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 can't. I remember at the beginning of the film when he arrives in the town, they they look at it. The camera looks at it and then you see it again towards the end. So I don't know if that has any specific meaning other than giving you a landmark and looking at the sky to see the time of day that everything is going on. I don't specifically have an answer on that, but they do feature it very prominently. Okay, so I'm looking at it and it's and you see it right when the the guy arrives at the inn and it's not um it's like an angel, isn't it? Right. Yeah, it's an angel uh holding a branch and um some kind of ring. Yeah, something like that. And it's like the logo for the hotel more or less. Yeah, because it even says hotel underneath, and and uh, she's, well, I don't know enough to analyze all the things, but it looks like she has one foot standing on a bowling ball, and <laughs> the other foot is standing on some kind of, of plant, and then she's, yeah, holding another plant. And, or And like a wreath, also, like a right. peace wreath or something. You come here for the intense symbolic analysis. <laughs> well... But I mean, um, I th- I think it's you're keying in on a, an image that's really interesting too, because uh, at another point in the film during one of the inner titles, I can't remember which one, but in the background behind the words, they have a cross. It's a really interesting choice that this this image is not a cross, because my my instinct is that like, oh, this is kind of again in. Dracula films, right? Uh, where you're so used to seeing Christian imagery because the idea is that like the people of the town are trying to protect themselves in some way. But this is this is still uh, very Christian, but but very different than that, and not as immediately kind of related to vampire lore. It could have. I can even imagine situations where it's just like when they're filming and they um, have to pick out you know set pieces from real life right they're like oh this this is nice we'll use this and it, they just like the way that it looks well also um dryer i know he did uh i don't know if he did it here but i know he did like to shoot on location and that is kind of the type of thing that you can get when you shoot on location is that like oh well we're shooting at this actual inn or you know maybe it's something else but they already had you know this like image and it looks really cool we'll just shoot this right yeah, it kind of looks like something you would find on, I don't know, Antiques Roadshow or something. Anyway. I guess kind of taking taking all these sim- symbols, all this uh, really potent imagery and subtext in mind, I was wondering if if this, and I know I've asked this question or, or uh, one like it in, in multiple other episodes we've done, but it, th- since this film is so kind of experimental, do you think you get more out of it, like, looking for for the literary kind of the more literary elements in the specific subtext or as just kind of a as a, a ride or as an experience that kind of washes over you i think it works as both but especially in the early part of the film it felt like a haunted house attraction you know how I mentioned that Alan when he's in vet, he's just looking around 
we kind of see ourselves almost from we we are almost looking at things from his perspective so it feels like when you go to for example the haunted mansion at disneyland and you have that uh especially at the beginning of that ride before you actually get on the ride you're walking through this haunted mansion and you see all these interesting and spooky things it to me this movie felt a lot a lot like that um and <laughs> I was thinking, you know, you know, the little poison bottle that they that they have in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was kind of so funny to me that it looked it looks like I mean, I don't know if bottles of poison were literally literally actually look like that back then. But it looks like a bottle of poison you would see like in a Mario game or something where <laughs> because it's an actual little black bottle with a skull and crossbones. It it's I don't know the focusing in on on these interesting kind of items makes it feel very experiential in a way because rather than just looking at a show again it reinforces that almost first person perspective where when you focus in on these little things. As a side note about the the poison bottle, you know they still use that the skull and crossbones. Oh, I know, I know, like you have it, like, but it'll be like a little. It's it's not you'll it'll be there on the bottle of poison, but it's not like you just have a black bottle and it's the only thing that's on there. You know, I like can't remember might, which manner of poison I put in this bottle. No, well, exactly. Like you, you, like if you buy poison now, you have like you know, oh, this is roach poison, or this is like for cleaning my counters, or this is like so. Otherwise, it's like, well, I, this could be anything. But- <laughs> Okay, so to round out the discussion, I'd like to talk a little bit about the legacy of this film. So as I referenced earlier, upon release, this movie did not do terribly well, either critically or commercially. And even afterwards, when uh, the, the I guess the tempers about it had kind of cooled, uh, most people considered it one of one of Dreyer's lesser works. Until I, it's hard to find like a specific date about when this kind of thing is reevaluated. But from what I can see, it seems like starting around the early or uh, the late nineties, people started to reevaluate reevaluated as being like a, a very interesting and, and important work in its own right. The late nineties that late. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I think the primary focus when talking about dryer is, is the passion of Joan of Arc. Um, and, this was seen as kind of like a weird little horror movie that he did before, you know, kind of his late, late period films. But yeah, so it's now, it's now gotten a greater degree of recognition. At some point we'll have to do uh, an episode or a short episode or some kind of discussion about the Criterion collection, because that's actually a very uh, critically and politically complicated thing. But um, it does have a Criterion release, uh, which, uh, you know, despite that being kind of a complicated statement, that that does have some significance as to uh, the the interest of kind of like cinephiles overseeing a, a high quality restoration of this. And what struck me so much about this film is that I thought that like you could basically take this thing and release it today 
and it could it could pass as like an A24 horror film. For those who don't know, A24 is a uh, film company that does uh, distribution as well as production. I think they do some some television as well. They became very popular for releasing a lot of kind of what is considered like the modern renaissance of horror. So films like It Follows and The Witch and Hereditary, these are all A24 films. And I think what reminded me so much of A24 from Vampire is that so many of those films use a lot of very cryptic dialogue. So frequently characters will kind of talk past each other uh, in the same way that the Lord of the Manor and Alan Gray kind of spoke past each other. You don't really get a sense of exactly what is going on in that particular scene. There's kind of an unstable narrative reality. There's, you know, there are questions as to what is actually supernatural and sometimes what is, what is even happening. And also the sound design operating uh here i think it was it was a little bit more prominent than in a lot of the a24 films but kind of using sound uh as a as a sting and then as kind of a a subtle underlining for kind of the i suppose the less dread-filled moments of the film uh so I guess monica i was wondering how does vampire kind of writ large compared to other films other horror films that we've discussed on the podcast. And I was wondering if you thought it felt more like kind of that contemporary prestige horror or more like kind of the, the a silent film or, or a very, very early talkie. So one of my questions to you was going to be, why do you think it feels modern? But I guess I see what you mean to, to me, it's still f- feels very early. I mean, when you say that it could be an A24 film today, do you mean if they had the exact same film, but they refilmed it in color and it was all like all the technology was up to date, but then they just filmed it the exact same way, like frame by frame or just as it is just maybe a little bit restored? Oh, well, I mean, I think uh, uh, obviously certain things updated because I think there, you know, there are certain elements of it that are distinguishable as older, you know, older film. Um, so I, I guess some of like the angles of shots as modern as it is look a little bit older, but basically, yeah, like you were saying, kind of, if you, if you took the entire thing and essentially did a, a shot for shot, um, semi remake of it, I really do think you could release it as a 24, maybe even without adding dialogue. A24 also released the film The Lighthouse, uh, which was notable for having, it wasn't exactly this, but like essentially a 4-3 aspect ratio. So very uh, television kind of box-like. And it was also entirely in black and white. I guess the thing for me is that basically like all the other horror films that we've done for the podcast so far, this one also was not scary to me. As I said earlier, creepy at parts, but not the way that I don't chicken out, you know, when I watch it the way I do with contemporary films. Because that was true for all of our um, films that we watch for our horror month, um, even including Don't Look Now, right? Which was from a much later movie, 1973 ish. And to me, I know that we've had this conversation and referenced it before that. For something to qualify as horror doesn't mean it has to, like, scare your pants off or whatever. But I just mean, for me, that if 
the movie's not scaring me, that it's hard for me to perceive it as modern, maybe. Because every single horror movie that I've seen that that's made like now-ish, like say within the last 20 or 30 years, has been scary to me because I'm I'm just such a chicken. <laughs> well, so I, I think, as you said, we've kind of had this discussion before, but I think what you might be keying in on is not so much the distinction between between modern and like older films, but more the specific stylistic choices and the idea of um a horror film as being being primarily tone versus a horror film like i'd um mentioned earlier uh movies we both like the the conjuring movies uh films that are are horror kind of by formula and i don't i don't say that to to detract in any way i think those are really wonderful movies but i think that the reason they're so effective is because they know that like okay we have this scene for X amount of time and then we have like a jump scare and then we go over to this scene and we have kind of growing tension and then we release the tension, then we bring it back, right? That kind of very deliberately calculated uh, style. And I think when I was talking about A24, I don't think you get that much of that in those films. Uh, so I do, I think maybe that it's it's less a distinction of time and more a distinction of, of style. It's true. Well, okay. So yeah, actually looking at these movies now, The Witch, yeah, I guess actually that wasn't super scary. Although it but the thing is like and also Hereditary, like the first half of the movie isn't scary at all. But the thing is both of those movies despite that in the moments in which they were scary, really were scary to me. Whereas these other films don't have any like anything like that. Uh Don't Look Now, I guess, yeah, uh, right at the end, but that was a much later movie also. But anyway, yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, I think part of that too could also just be the, uh, and I mean, not to speculate too much on your taste, but I wonder if part of that isn't just a knowledge that it is older and kind of as a result, having that baggage of like, oh, well, it can, you know, it, it probably can't be as scary as stuff they make now, which is like really scary, you know? I think from my perspective, I just, I can't, I feel like this film and The Witch are equally frightening. This movie had a happy ending, though. I don't know. I think it depends on how you how you interpret that. Really? You don't? Well, okay. I guess the 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 Lord of the Manor died, but everybody got saved, and they impaled the vampire. Yay! They. <laughs> I mean, they impaled the vampire, but I think the like the death of the town doctor is, I, I thought, very disturbing. A lot of the scenes where he's like, you know, his his kind of cage is being filled up with flour and he's like grasping, you know, grasping at the bars trying to get out. I thought it was it was really interesting how that that whole sequence, it's being intercut at the same time that Alan and uh, uh, Giselle are kind of going off and and escaping the town and i i don't you know i i would have to kind of look through it again and build up more of an argument for this but it felt very much like like this subversion of the happy ending right that there was still this nightmare going on even if you know the town doctor was objectively a bad dude was not doing good things there's still this kind of horror show going on well i mean i know that in terms of progressive politics you're supposed to be you're supposed to have compassion for everybody, but more in the vein of traditional storytelling, aren't we supposed to be happy to see the bad guy go down, right? Like when Gaston falls off 
the tower and the castle and Beauty and the Beast, that's a happy ending, right? Even though, like, if you were imagining that, like, he were a real person, we should have compassion for him and we should have saved him and, like, all this other stuff. Do you know what I mean? Well, but I mean, I I don't think that you specifically have to have compassion or make that, you know, make the entire ending a tragedy to have kind of like a negative experience with those scenes. Because I think think the distinction between, you know, Beauty and the Beast and Gaston dying and this film is that in Beauty and the Beast, Gaston dies and it's like it's a gravely serious moment and then the plot resolves and we go off to our happy ending. And here the town doctor is dying as they're going off into their happy ending and it's jolting back and forth, Mm -hmm. which I think makes it a little more nauseating. And also I think like, I'm not saying that you have to feel terrible that Gaston died, but like if I had a kid and the kid was like, rewinding back to the scene of Gaston dying over and over and like cackling madly through it, I'd be concerned, you know? Well, 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 right. I mean, no, like that would be creepy if you, but yeah, but I'm also just like not losing any sleep over the doctor being buried under, under the flower by the man that he, um, murdered right or helped murder i wasn't clear on that who murdered the lord of the manor uh i think it's kind of implied that that was one of the spirits controlled by the vampire slash the town doctor okay Um, so anyway the the doctor was complicit in it like i'm not i'm not the kind of person who's gonna go back and gleefully rewatch that again and again but i can like see him get buried and be like "Hmm, oh good he's gone (laughs) (laughs) i mean knowing that the knowing that this is not real life right Well, but I mean, that's, you know, but that's the issue is that like, if you were deliberately saying, I know this is not real life, so I can engage with it in, in that way, then you're breaking your suspension of disbelief. And you could say that like, oh, well, the film wasn't constructed in such a way that kept that suspension of disbelief going. But either way, I think you're, that's not really accepting the film on its own terms necessarily. I don't know. I do. I will agree that it, I think layering that imagery makes it kind of disturbing rather than he sees his end and then you get the happy ending. Right. So that's true. Did you have any uh, final thoughts on the film? Yeah, it was good. I had a few questions. I don't know if you had the answers to, do you know anything about the political influences at the time that might've affected this movie? Not really specifically. I know that later, later in about 10 years after this, in 1943, he made a film called Day of Wrath. And he directed that in the, um, during the, the Nazi occupation of Denmark. And so apparently that film, I haven't seen it, but that film is, is very much about kind of fascist rule uh, and living within that. But I don't really know about Vampire, like what political influence would have been there and i didn't i didn't really see anything referenced or or any quotes from dreyer indicating that there was there were political elements uh obviously that's not to say that there aren't but um i just don't really have anything on that um and then this movie it was it was recorded in french as well right i think it was recorded in in german french and english uh if i'm not mistaken okay um do you happen to know if they 
use the same footage and then just overdubbed it in the different languages or did they refilm it each time so that they're i mean because there's not even that much dialogue but so that they're they're you know they're uh what do you call it their flaps <laughs> fit <laughs> with the with the um the actual dialogue yeah i did see reference that they did um they recorded the dialogue like three times over okay uh to match um to match the the flaps <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that about does it for our conversation on Carl Theodore Dreyer's Vampire. Okay, I'd like to thank my sources for today. First of all is the article Not All Things Are Phallic Female Film Vampires by James Craig Holt, and that appeared in the Journal of the Fantastic in the Arts. Also, the video essay, Carl Theodore Dreyer's Most Unusual Experiment by David Bordwell, which is available on the Criterion website. Uh, Also, the official website for Carl Theodore Dreyer, that's carlthdreyer.dk, which has a tremendous amount of biographical information on him. Uh, Super interesting stuff. Uh, And as always, Wikipedia. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with us on social media, we are Maybe Today Matinee on Facebook and Instagram, at Mayday Matinee on Twitter. Uh, if you want to send us an email, we are Maybe Today Matinee at gmail.com. Also, if you would like to support the podcast, there are a couple of different things. Uh, first off, we have a Patreon up, and we are going to start introducing extra episodes on there. So keep an eye out for that. We are Maybe Today Matinee on there. And also, if you just want to, you know, leave a review, write a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or, or whatever your service is, that is hugely helpful in getting the show heard by more people. Next week, we're going to be continuing our October Horror Month with the 1950 film Kankal. I'm David. I'm Monica. And this is Maybe Today Matinee. (laughs) 